It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hello, I'm Stephen. And I'm Helen. No, actually I'm not. Sorry. Once again, Helen is out of the office. Uh, so it's just me uh, in the driving seat, as it were, for our election special, where we're hearing from people from Northern Ireland, from Wales, from Scotland, and from England about the elections that are coming in just under a month now. Um, so strap yourself in and let's get ready for a wild ride. Hello and welcome to a segment from our special election podcast of the New Statesman. We are joined by Stephen Brasher, our subscriptions manager, who is also the font of all knowledge related to elections. He writes the very popular returning officer column in the magazine. And I've decided, Stephen, I'm actually, we have this problem in the office, which is that you're both called Stephen. So I'm going to say Stephen and you're both going to look around. So can I just call you something else, Stephen Bush, for the duration of this podcast? Uh, I mean, it depends on what the else is, but yeah, sure, I'm, I'm not opposed to that. Okay, I'll think. I'll think on my feet. Um, Stephen Brasher, for the benefit of those of us who perhaps feel that we ought to know more about the local elections but don't, how many of them are happening on the fifth of May? Uh, well, you're talking about thousands of seats, but obviously lots of places will have no elections at all. Some places will have only a third up, and some people will have all ups. Uh, what's the geographical distribution like? Are these primarily in the south of England, the Midlands, the north? It's, or is it just completely all over the place? No, no, it's, it's all over the place. I mean, there's, there's, there's never a geographic split in elections as such. I mean, I suppose it does depend whether you, if you looked at it, though, whether there are more metropolitan authorities in the north, which generally there are. But that's not, that's just an accident of history, I suppose, more than anything else. And my big question is really, what does a good performance... OK, so let's let's look at it from Labour's point of view, right? So you would presume in the first year of a new parliament that the opposition would make gains? Is that a reasonable assumption? Uh, you you might do, except, of course, it depends what happened in the same seats at the, in the previous cycle. So four years ago, Labour gained something like 800 seats. So it's going to be next to impossible in some ways to improve on that or do the same again. The fact that it happens to come after an election defeat and therefore you're campaigning against an incumbent government doesn't necessarily help. So when people start kind of going, oh, you know, Labour, say, assume that Labour have lost, what, 50, 100 seats. That, is that a really, is that a bad result for Jeremy Corbyn or is that just kind of naturally flaking away what you'd expect from their high watermark last time? Yes, yeah. I would say so. And and I think that people were over-talking it last year and they sort of said that it was going to be an absolute disaster and Labour were going to lose hundreds of seats across the the, the country. And I think that's quite unlikely to happen. 
um, for a number of reasons. One, because obviously the politics of the country have changed since this time last year, and although Jeremy Corbyn is in some ways no more popular than he was this time last year, the government is now more unpopular than it was this time last year. Stephen Bush, were you a betting man? What would figure would you put on how many seats Labour will gain or lose? Um, I mean, so... So Rob Ford calculates that a good night, then what's reasonable to expect is 200 gains and 35% of the vote uh, nationally is a projected score. I don't think they will get that. I think it will probably be what 32% projected share of the vote and probably some minor losses in the kind of 50 to 100 mark, which is historically not great, but it's not you know catastrophic. What's the level at which like Labour begin to panic and freak out? I would, I would think if you were looking at two, three, four hundred losses, that would be a very bad night indeed. Um, but I don't, I don't think that's going to happen. I mean, in some ways, I suspect if all things line up, it's going to be quite a boring election night um, because the government, <laughs> there aren't going to be... People always look for headline losses and gains and there probably aren't going to be that many of those sort of in authorities at places people have heard of. Uh, and again, when we get these elections, the metropolitan authorities and the unitaries tend to take the headlines over the districts. I mean, simply because obviously they're bigger. Um, but some of the more interesting contests are at a district level. Um, and particularly if you're looking, for instance, about a revival for the Lib Dems, because well, that would be where they would be looking to. They're not thinking about, really, about Bradford and Liverpool and places like that, even though they would hope to get back. But they're looking at districts. And so, you know, again, for them, a good night would be actually very small. But in terms of yeah, in terms of the smaller parties, uh, obviously the Lib Dems have had quite a lot of success in council by-elections, but this is the first test of whether or not this so-called Lib Dem fight back is real. What are the other parties? You know, what's a good night for the Greens and for UKIP? Uh, I think for the Greens, um, Bristol is their, their big place because obviously they're competitive now at a parliamentary level and the Lib Dems were on the way backwards. Uh, the whole council is up because it's been rewarded, as they say. Mm. And there's also a mayoral election at the same time, mm. um, which which should help. So the Greens... Bristol's got an independent mayor at the moment, hasn't it? Slash Lib Dem. So that, yeah, he was originally he was originally a Lib Dem, and uh, basically it's between him and him and Labour. He has been um, he has been sort of seen to be quite green, and at one point the Greens weren't going to stand against him. I don't know if they actually are now. I have to say, um, which would seem a bit strange in a place they're hoping to. Uh, to do very well in and the other place they do very well in is strangely Solihull um, where they're the, the official opposition on the Metropolitan Authority um, basically because both Labour and the Lib Dems have collapsed in that area that's it so does that does that overlap with whose parliamentary seat is it? it's not just Phillips and Birmingham Yardley then it's no, no it's whoever else. it was who took out Laurelie Burt the Lib Dem so it's yeah. a conservative isn't it's it? a conservative seat yeah. I mean it's, it's, it's Solihull is the only reliably Tory Metropolitan Authority I don't think anybody's won it since, apart from them, since 74. I may have gone to know of or control at various points with a mm. with an anti-Tory coalition. But it's, you know, even if the Greens did very well there, then they're not pretending that they'd actually take control. So they're sort of looking at the local elections in the way the Lib Dems used to. They are going into a certain number of places and they are sort of targeting fairly ruthlessly. And then they can say, well, Greens are an authority or we're the official opposition mm. or whatever it is. UKIP are in a very interesting place because they've... Um, had a disappointment of a general election, even though in percentage terms they did very well. Um, and then since the election, they've had a lot of seats coming up in by-elections and generally their performance has been pretty dreadful. Um, Labour have even taken a 
a couple of seats. Do you think them. that's because the EU debate has kind of swallowed them as a as a Tory thing, and you're seeing lots of Eurosceptic Tories or? I think it's it's a poor par- organisation generally. On it's their partially part. to do with where they are as a party. So we're now at sort of a, a certain mark where they've gained a lot of seats from defections and they've gained a lot of seats uh, running up to a general election when they could sort of say, well, we're neither of the big parties. And now they're in a sort of situation where they need to consolidate those gains. And even in some places, of course, where they've actually, like Stanley, where they formed a ruling group. And surprise, surprise, the people who've come from different political areas and from defected from independents and Tories have fallen out with each other. And quite a lot of their councillors have gone back to being independent. Well, and a huge number of their MEPs left over the course of the last parliament, didn't they? They had a real yeah. exodus of UKIP MEPs going independent. Yeah, so it, 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 it's a question of whether, again, their percentage could, could keep up. I mean, it may well be that the EU referendum actually, in some ways, gives them a boost. But they have also got problems in their MEP selections this time around mm. and, you know, ruckus around the Welsh Assembly, which I know we're not strictly talking about. Um, but I wouldn't expect it to be totally disastrous for them. But they have kind of got sort of the... With Lib Dems, what always used to happen is if you got... I remember on Labour MP saying, you know, Lib Dems are like knotweed. If, you know, they get one elected, they work really hard and they're impossible to dislodge unless, of course, they're lost in a wave as they were over the last five years. Whereas with UKIP, there's this thing where they get in and then they're actually not very competent. And so they actually set UKIP back a bit by getting elected. They're at that, they're at that stage where a lot of the people who got elected didn't expect to get elected um, or you know, were getting elected in places where you know, the party perhaps didn't expect them to be. And what they need to do at a national or local level is move on to what you might call the professionalisation of the party. So you have people joining them sort of in an expectation of getting elected. That doesn't seem to be happening. And the, the, the sort of infighting around the, the Welsh Assembly and the MEP selection sort of illustrates that. Um, but, you know, they still have areas of, of great strength. And the other thing they can do in these elections is out- determine the outcome for the other two part- for the two major parties, particularly in Plictian, Plumber like Plymouth, where they had a big effect on the general election result. And it's a, a classic Labour-Tory marginal in many ways. Mm. And the received wisdom is that they take more of the Labour vote than they do the Tory vote in somewhere like Plymouth, which could hand the authority, you know, the Tories. But, you know, if they had a disastrous night, that would in theory be to the benefit of Labour. And that's true in quite a few places. Thurrock is another good example, mm. where it's quite unlikely now that they will take control of that council, which, but they could hand it to one of the other the other major parties. Nobody really knows which way their vote splits when it's in decline. Uh, one final question I want to ask you, which is if you could nominate one place that we should watch on election night, one local election that will be interesting or indicative, do you think? Probably Dudley would be quite interesting if Labour lose it mm-hmm. because it would show that they'd had a very bad night and somewhere like Hastings as well because uh, again we tend to go for the big authorities and Hastings is actually a very strong Labour authority but in theory they could Labour could lose control um, as far as Labour gaining anything I think most of the things that they could they would hope to gain in that are hung authorities places like Kirklees are sort of a too classic marginal because you've got to factor in the fact that the Lib Dems will not be performing really as badly as they have been in the last two or three years and will affect the result uh, and places like Milton Keynes where I think I think the gain is beyond them in terms of in terms of actual seats so it's, it's quite tricky to sort of push anywhere that we could do Walsall I suppose which is an authority that should be reliably Labour on a sort of fairly regular basis and yet never has been even though Labour hold both of the parliamentary seats 
and have done really for a very long time. Well, thank you, Stephen. A rare shout out for Walsall, which I'm appreciating on the uh, New Statesman podcast. More of that. And uh, perhaps we can lure you back again after the uh, results have happened to chew them over. Okay, that'd be good. Caroline. And I'm Anna. And we host the Pop Culture Podcast from the New Statesman. Seriously. If you secretly care more about comics than Jeremy Corbyn, this is the podcast for you. You can find all our episodes at newstatesman.com forward slash SRSLY. And now it's time to look out of the window to London with our City Metric editor, John Elledge, joining me and Stephen to talk about the race. I'm saved Sadiq Khan versus Zach Goldsmith, but we must remember, of course, that there are other candidates are available. There are many candidates. Boring, boring. (laughs) Right, okay, well, you can deal with the hate mail on on that one from the angry Lib Dems. Oh, all three of them. (laughs) I'll take my chances. I can fight all of you. I, I have a bit of a crush on the Green candidate, Sean Berry, because she's quite hot and talks about transport policy all the time. So that's kind of... <laughs> <laughs> it's a really good job that things that we say well, on the podcast the don't... the most inflammatory <laughs> yeah, person on say... this podcast. It's like but... what happens on the podcast stays on the podcast. It never quite makes it to Twitter storm. So I think, you know, unless I, I, I might tweet that you said that and then you'll be in trouble. Who's hotter, Sadiq or Zach, just to redress the gender balance? I think it's pretty clear that, that Zach is the hot one. I mean, he's like a foot taller. But I think you get this feeling that Zach Goldsmith has been so languid on the campaign trail, so uninterested in the process of winning the election. I just don't think that um, he would put as much effort into the uh, act of coitus as... Um, <laughs> oh, my God! As, no, Sadiq, you, you would come first with Sadiq, wouldn't you? I mean, like, that guy would be a Sadiq selfless... Sadiq wants to please you. Oh, mate, yeah, like... Uh, a, a Sadiq really, really wants it. Exactly. Zach just kind of expects it to just kind of land in his lap. I mean... I am traumatised and I'm going to try and drag this podcast back in the direction of relevance to the question at hand before we turn into, like, Britain's top ten most bangable okay, politicians. Okay, okay. I have a John, serious point. who is going to win? Who is going to win? I think Sadiq is probably going to win. I don't think you should ever un- uh, underestimate the Labour Party's ability to screw up things it should do well. Um, but at the moment, Sadiq's got a 10-point lead. And, and he just he's just so much more energised. Like, he does just seem... He is a man who very clearly really wants to be London Mayor. This is his dream. This is what he's fighting for. He will say or do whatever is necessary to get that job done. Zach has the air of a man for whom life has been quite easy and things have come to him and now he's finding himself in a situation where things aren't easy and maybe it's maybe it's not that maybe I'm being unfair maybe he never really wanted the nomination in the first place and the party kind of pressured him into it because all the other candidates were substantially worse but either way he does not yeah, look like a man did, I think he did want it from things that I've heard I just think and it's quite interesting because he did really want to become an MP so he's been an MP for Richmond right for the last mm. I was going to say six years now mm. it'll be um, and you know and he was an editor of the Ecologist magazine before that he obviously cares really deeply about green issues but I think actually it's more that I, from having spoken to him only a couple of times, but he does come across as someone who's quite shy. Like he's not a he's not a big swinging dick like Boris. Like Boris, you just know if he turned up to a party, he'd mostly be interested in showing off how much everybody should listen to Boris. And that's not Zach at all, actually. He always comes across like I get the sense he's a, he's a nice guy. Yeah, he seems like a decent human being. Uh, which makes it all the stranger that there's there's these kind of undertones to his campaign where someone out there is is nudge is pushing the line. Oh, you can't quite trust the brown guy. 
And it's very unpleasant. I think that um, uh, Anusha Kalian wrote a brilliant piece for us about the strange kind of racial profiling that's being done by that campaign, which is being run by Crosby Texter, Linton Crosby's firm, although they say that Linton Crosby himself has got nothing to do with it. Um, and the fact that they sort of kind of go, who will stand up for the, you know, the Tamil community, you know, and then the sort of suggestion that uh, because of Labour believe in, in wealth taxes, they're going to kind of tax your family jewellery. It's kind of basically all the people that Anu spoke to said, well, look, you know, some people from our parents, grandparents' generation, they might kind of just, you know, they might be sort of slightly swayed by that. But to our generation who are kind of, you know, a second or third generation even, this does feel like kind of quite crude targeting that is slightly hitting the mark and actually doesn't speak to us and makes us feel kind of, you know, marginalised and and othered, really. It it doesn't feel to me like it's the campaign that Goldsmith would run if he... No, I think he gave a quote to The Guardian basically saying exactly that, saying, like, I've never had to run a negative campaign before, so this is quite hard for me. So, which is, but it's just, I, I think that's a real shame, because if you go away from something having lost, then at least you want to feel like you have grown... Like, mm. this is the thing about kind of... I don't know if, how you feel about this, Stephen, about Liz Kendall, who came out of that leadership contest... I think looking better than she when she went in, right? She ran a, a a very unpopular campaign, but she ran it quite. Her personally, she came across quite well. She advocated for things unpopular things within the Labour Party quite well, and she's kind of come out of it looking a bigger figure than she went in. I mean, do you think Zach will end up coming out of this looking like a bigger figure than he went in if he doesn't win? No, I mean, I think then I wouldn't rule out at all the possibility for him to spring a surprise. We know from the polls that around 30% of uh, voters say they are uncomfortable with the idea of a Muslim mayor. And, you know, let, let's let's be entirely upfront about it. Zach Goldsmith is running a basically Islamophobic campaign in which he's using words like radical, like divisive, about a middle-road politician from the soft left of the Labour Party. Well, I thought it was particularly unfair because, I mean, we had um, Zach who came in to to talk to the staff, and actually, you know, he has a lot... He's been one of the most consistent people speaking out against anti-Semitism in Mm. in politics. You know, he's a human rights lawyer. He is not, I would say, he you know, even to... He's he's not flirted with, I would say, Islamism or, or political Islam or any of that kind of stuff. And I actually said things that are quite unpopular within a lot of, of Muslim populations yeah. in London. And also, it, it feels to me like it would be, just think of it from an optics point of view, it feels like it would be a great message to send at this point in history if one of the world's leading cities, leading Western cities, elected a liberal Muslim as mayor. It just feels like that will be quite a good thing. Never mind the individual policies or how good you actually be at the job, but just just to send that message to the world that you know the West and Islam were not in opposition to each other would be a very positive thing to do. Yeah, and I think that's one of the things I find quite interesting about Sadiq and his faith. So, full disclosure, he invited me and a couple of other journalists to his house in Tooting in Ramadan and with iftar, which is the meal where you break fast. And he said, you know, you can come and watch me pray if you want, which I felt really uncomfortable about being very British, like the idea that was sort of kind of intruding on stuff. But I think he's very aware of the fact that, you know, lots of people, this is just, particularly if they've, if, you know, we know a lot of London's population didn't grow up here. They, you know, people moved here, people have immigrated here. You know, they might just not have any Muslim friends. They not might not be aware of, uh, you know, Islam and religious practices in the way they are about Christian practices, you know, in the way that lots of people who don't, whose families don't have any particular belief will have kind of seen songs of praise on the TV. And I think that he could be a really great ambassador for 
as you say, for, for, for what it's like to be somebody who absolutely has no problems reconciling their faith with secular values. My yeah. local pub, in, sorry, my local pub, my local mosque, which is opposite my local pub. <laughs> right. Um, I was going to say, if, you, they, if they were both at the same time, that's, that's very liberal. Uh, they, well, it used to be a pub, in fact, but it's, the local mosque in King's Cross is a, is a converted pub. Uh, and a couple of years ago, they did a sort of open day where they just kind of put up a bunch of exhibitions about, um, you know, what, what Islam was and what people believed and explaining it on and sort of show people around. And I, I went there more for sort of journalistic curiosity than anything else. And it rapidly became clear that no one had really gone in. Like they kind of, they were sort of just standing there a bit forlornly about trying to do this sort of community outreach and finding the community actually didn't care that much. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, for, I mean, for all the reasons you just said, I think it, that that kind of ambassadorial role would would be a great thing to do. But yeah, I mean, I think there is a, a real a real risk still that then Goldsmith could win. Yes, Zadik is ahead in all the polls, but in all of the polls, you have forty nine percent of people saying they will definitely vote. The peak of turnout in um, in the London Mirror list, 45% in 2008, uh, when Boris defeated Ken Livingstone. Uh, it was 30, uh, 34% last time. We know that it feels highly unlikely that that 49% of people will turn out to vote. And Zach Goldsmith still has a lead among the elderly in the outer boroughs of London, places where the the uh, the anti-Muslim message may well resonate. And I think there is a there's certainly there's a lot of nervousness among Labour's ethnic minority MPs, and the polls are underestimating Sadiq's difficulties with a certain type of voter. Um, let's talk quickly about how Sadiq Khan has played this campaign in relation to Jeremy Corbyn. So, Jeremy Corbyn as Labour leader is both phenomenally popular with some sections of London. Mm. I think you know, I've, yeah. you and I have both, Stephen, have both been to Corbyn rallies in well in Islington, among yeah. other places that have been packed to the rafters with people who are loving the Corbyn. Um, but he's had a kind of slight... I mean, the, the the conservative attacks on him is literally a picture of Sadiq Khan standing next to Jeremy Corbyn saying, you know, like, let's juxtapose friend of business, friend of whoever, Zach Goldsmith, with this radical. And, and you know, and, and Jeremy Corbyn is kind of advanced as more proof of, of Sadiq's kind of dangerous quasi-communism. Do you think he's played it well so far in kind of where he's calibrated his message to appeal, you know, to people who are both pro and anti-Corbyn? Yeah, I think... I mean, partly because what he's calculated entirely correctly is that people who are pro-Corbyn have nowhere else to go. Uh, They might vote Green in the first round. Some of them may vote for George Galloway in the first round. But in the second round, they are going to vote for Sadiq over Zach Goldsmith. He did... The interview he did was very clever. Right after he got the nomination, he did an interview with the Mail on Sunday in which he said... I definitely sing I the definitely national, sing the national anthem. anthem. Yeah. I'm really proud to be a patriotic citizen of this country. All of which was a very clever way, both of putting clear water between him and uh, Jeremy Corbyn. But in terms of those voters who we do know are nervous about uh, Muslims, he has done a a good job of what um, one American sociologist terms whistling uh, Vivaldi, which is something that he described himself as doing when uh, it is a very tall black uh, American sociologist. And he would uh, whistle Vivaldi when he realised people were, were nervous in his presence late at night. And Sadiq has done a masterful job of combining, oh, I'm my own man, with uh, some of that reassurance. And particularly on the Jewish community, which has a lot of doubts about uh, Corbyn, but also had a lot of doubts about... Obviously, it didn't didn't worry that Ed Miliband was pally with anti-Semitism, but the uh, the the drift of Labour policy under Ed 
particularly towards Palestinian statehood, did arguably cost Labour the seat in Finchley and Golders Green. And uh, obviously, Ken Livingstone's various outbursts about how you people are rich and therefore won't vote for me did hurt uh, Ken's campaign in 2012. And Sadiq has done a masterful job of using that as a pivot. So he is, you know, he has been uh, ruthless and very effective in getting rid of his weaknesses. So, I mean, if we predict that, looking at this overall picture, if, if there is a win for Sadiq, as the polls would indicate at the moment, that's got to be a big boost to Jeremy Corbyn, hasn't it? Yes. I mean, my instinct is even if Sadiq loses, actually, so much of the internal Labour reaction will be we were robbed because of a dirty campaign, which will help Jeremy, will, will, will kind of be more of a... In inoculation, if Zach Goldsmith was was uh, fighting a more hopey, changey campaign and he defeated Sadiq like that, that would be a real body blow. But yeah, it will it will be a boost for Corbyn if, as the polls predict, Sadiq becomes mayor. And on his policy program, John, what bits of it do you like and dislike? How, he won't build on the green belt, so I know that's already a a, a bit of a, a deal breaker for you. I'm, yeah, I'm I'm actually a bit half-hearted about him in policy terms he won't as you say build on the green belt and all the uh, all the figures that i've ever seen suggest that building only on the land the mayor owns uh which which is his main housing policy um so that's tfl land it's mostly but that's it's it's enough for a few years supply but london needs to be building like fifty thousand homes a year we're currently at about twenty thousand, um and you know we're getting further and further behind uh, what we need to meet demand, and I just don't think that's adequate. It might seem for a first term, but that's if it all comes on stream, which it probably won't. He's um, not going to kill off the Garden Bridge either, is he? No, but again, I think that's part of the, the, the virtue signalling that Stephen just described. The other thing that I have my doubts about with Sadiq is um, his big policy is a fares freeze for, for um, the tube and so on which is one of those things that sounds absolutely lovely, but TFO is actually a pretty well-run organisation. Like, people from other transport authorities around the world come and see what London is doing. It's kind of seen as a world leader in this space. There was a great tweet um, from some of the people at the Adam Smith Institute, who are very, very free market, going like, we can't, we can, we'd really like it if TFL took over southeastern trains. Like, that's how yeah. you know that southeastern trains it's, are bad. It's done incredibly well the last few years. Um, but one side effect of this is that it's kind of spending its money pretty well and its grant from central government is gradually getting eroded away because the assumption is in a few years it will be pretty much self-funding if you're going to freeze fares that means cutting investment so again it's the kind of thing he might get away with that in the first term but a few years on there's going to be nasty side effects of that particularly when you say as you say london's population is growing so fast and there is not a lot of spare capacity in any of the overgrounds or indeed underground lines at all. No, not at all. And a fares freeze over a period of four or five years kind of amounts to a fares cut once you take inflation into account. Um, and all the laws of economics say that if you cut the price of something, people will want more of it. So it, it, it's, it, I just don't think it stands up. That said, I kind of trust Sadiq to go back on his promises. I kind of think he... Um, it's a beautiful thing to have to say about yeah. a politician. But I, I sort of think he's... I don't want to use the word slippery, but... Pragmatic, I think that's a nice way of saying that. He's the type of politician you can totally imagine getting into office and then say something like, well, you know, obviously we really wanted to do this, but now I've got in here and looked at the state of the books that Boris left, then unfortunately 
Um, and I wouldn't be surprised if he did that on housing as well. So yeah. I kind of think he would actually do what's necessary. He does really remind me of uh, Harold Wilson, actually, in some ways, right in Downton. In fact, that Harold Wilson built a power base uh, on the, the the kind of middle slash soft left of the Labour Party, rode that to the leadership, then ran a fairly centrist campaign, um, abandoned lots of his more highfalutin uh, promises, but did still introduce the open university, uh, decriminalisation of homosexuality, uh, and a sort of fairly transformative agenda. And I think Sadiq is a, a devious operator, uh, which I'm afraid is one of the things I like about him. Uh, but um, I think you're exactly right. He will uh, U-turn on a lot of the kind of more... Uh, yeah, hopefully he'll U-turn on the Garden Bridge. Which is another interesting contrast with, with Zach Goldsmith, I think, where he's clearly a man who very much wants to speak his mind in that he came out for Brexit, even though that's probably a net vote loser in London. Yeah, I kind of yeah, I think it probably is, but I also think maybe it's one of those issues that doesn't have a lot of salience in the mayoral election because you kind of think, well... You know what's the merit? What's the merit? he got to do with it? I mean, I think so. The the thing for the Goldsmith campaign is, on the one hand, I think they would privately have preferred it if he hadn't, but they also think that they their message, as well as this uh, nasty undercurrent, is going to have a kind of Sadiq changes his mind and is a flip flopper. You can trust Zach Goldsmith to stick to his guns, and obviously, if he had flip flopped on Brexit, this is the guy who's father bankrolled the referendum party he would have looked so disingenuous but it has hurt them because you know it does mean business is swinging coming swinging behind Sadiq is saying things like the housing crisis is the biggest uh, biggest threat to London in decades etc 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 because it doesn't feel that the conservative candidate is its natural ally okay well I think that's probably quite enough of, of London. If anybody who's listening still has a yen to hear more about Sadiq Khan, the New Statesman is doing an event with him on the 20th of April. You can find more details on our website. But for the moment, thank you, John. And now to talk about the elections in Wales, I'm joined by Anoush Shikalian, our deputy web editor, who's uh, just fresh back from the campaign trail with Carwin Jones, the first minister of Wales, uh, the only Labour politician currently in power anywhere in the United Kingdom, who is hopeful that he will be successfully back in power in the elections. How was the campaign trail? It was really interesting, actually. We went round um, some wards in a seat called Lanelli. I know I'm pronouncing that wrong, sorry, to our Welsh listeners and indeed to everyone else. Um, but it's a knife-edge seat. It, it changes hands every election between Plaid Cymru and, um, and Labour. And they. it's interesting because they're seeing their opposition there slowly split between UKIP and Plaid Cymru now because UKIP are on a massive surge in Wales. Um, there was a by-election in Caerphilly last week where Wales went up 20, uh, where UKIP went up 20 points. And um, most predictions think that they're going to win nine seats in the Welsh Assembly elections. Um, the campaign team who I was going round with, with Carwin Jones, thought it would be more like five. But still, that's a huge amount considering that UKIP don't actually have any seats in the Assembly at the moment. Um, so it's it's a blow for Labour because they, they at the moment they only have 30 seats, which is literally half. So it's not a majority. So it looks like they're not going to win a majority this time. Um, and even though their opposition is being split between UKIP and Plaid Cymru, it doesn't help them as much as you'd think because there's a list system as well as a um, seat system. So UKIP could get their universal support rather than from geographic particular areas. Yeah, Roger Scully calls it the most important polling movement no one has ever heard of, is right. this shift of support to uh, to UKIP in Wales. Um, the interesting thing is, that, so it looks like there'll be, what, 
25 to 27 uh, Labour seats, 12, uh, 12 Conservatives, 11 Plaid Cymru, and then 5 to 8 um, UKIP seats. Yeah, actually. that's what it looks like. Of course, um, Carwin Jones wasn't ready to admit that that was going to be the case, but they have ruled as a minority government there before, and they have ruled with other parties there before. So actually, it, it, you know, it, it, it would be... a it would be a, a blow to Labour in terms of its popularity in the country, but I don't think it would have a huge, huge impact on the way that it governs. Yeah. And I mean, in terms of the wider picture, which is its impact on politics uh, in the rest of the United Kingdom, the Conservatives had hoped that they would go into this election and gain ground. They now seem to be falling back in Wales thanks to the budget. Will there be any consequences for that, do we think? Yeah, I mean, the Conservatives had their best election in the general election last year in Wales for 30 years. So they were really looking like they're on a high. But it was so clear on the doorstep that the budget and the fallout from Ian Duncan Smith's um, resignation and all of the sort of mess that the Tories have got themselves in nationally has really affected those voters who were kind of floating, vote, maybe voted Tory last time, although they'd voted Labour in the past. They've, they've actually seemed to be warming to Labour now. Um, I was going along with... Um, uh, I think it's Naya Griffiths, who's who's the local MP there. She was on the campaign trail with us as well. And she was saying it was during the general election campaign when they were door knocking in the same area. It was very hostile. Uh, people hadn't made up their minds, weren't really that keen on Labour. And she was saying it was completely different this time. And that's certainly what I saw on the campaign trail. There was a lot of positivity towards Labour in a seat that is not a safe Labour seat. Well, interestingly, the Panama stuff didn't appear to be an issue in the same way, whereas IDS's resignation had made a big impact. Yeah, exactly. I don't know whether or not it's just time, it takes time for these stories to sink in, but I um, I was going around on the day that all of the revelations about David Cameron were coming out, so it would have been on the morning radio, it would have been in the six o'clock news. Not a single person on the doorstep mentioned the Prime Minister's tax affairs or you know, the dodgy cabinet or, or the party of the rich or anything like that. It was all very uh, local issues based. And um, I think people generally had a sense of disillusion with politics in general, but you always hear that on the doorstep. But yeah, there was nothing specific about the about the tax scandal. And I remember being on the train on the way back and just checking my checking my phone for the news that had been happening in Westminster that day. And, th- and that was the huge story and everyone was up in arms about it but it was funny to have come back from a, a sort of three hours of door knocking having not seen any evidence of that um and in terms of uh yeah so what's um obviously most of our listeners won't really know what carwin jones is like what was your impression of him from uh, i think he's I, I think he's very he's got a good manner with the voters he's really easygoing he's quite funny he obviously he speaks welsh so he he he's someone who resonates with people in that part of wales where we were which is quite which has got quite a high density of welsh speaking people um he also went into a bit of his background when i interviewed him he was talking about how he grew up in a town that's just next to sort of coal mining areas and that he spoke welsh at home and went to a comprehensive and and what i didn't know is that he's the first ever first or prime minister to have been educated at a comprehensive there's never been um there's never been one before him i think nicola sturgeon is the only other one now mm. and there's never been a prime minister who didn't go to a private school or a grammar school so he was saying that that that's helped him with his appeal because he's, he's been in power for a really long time now mm. and he thinks that that authenticity has resonated with his voters well you can read the full interview in this week's ns and thanks very much for coming in thank you And uh, now I'm joined by Siobhan Fenton, uh, who writes for a variety of outlets, but also writes regularly for 
for us on Northern Ireland. She's going to discuss the elections uh, there and what's at stake in those contests. Thanks very much for coming in. Thanks for having me. So, you know, what, what's what's worth looking out for in the coming elections? You know, you know who's going to, who looks likely to do well, who looks likely to do badly? Um, so I think the most interesting thing about the election coming up is not necessarily how the different parties will do in terms of vote share, but the actual individual politicians who are there. So I think it's um, 30% of Stormont MLAs aren't standing for a re-election, which in Northern Ireland is quite significant because we have largely had the same politicians for literally 30, 40 years. Um, so for the first time we'll have some of the really big figures like Peter Robinson will be uh, re-standing for Stormont and also Alistair MacDonald and Margaret Ritchie from the SDLP will both be uh, leaving their, their seats at Stormont. So um, it'll be quite significant just to see that we'll have actually new faces for the first time in, in a long time. Um, and for the first time as well, I think the majority of politicians in Stormont won't have had um, first-hand experience of the troubles. It'll be more sort of this new generation coming through, which is quite, um, in terms of Northern Ireland, kind of moving forward to, to new politics, that'll be probably the most significant thing we'll see after the election. Um, just to give our listeners a handle on the various types of politics, so the SDLP is uh, a social democratic party, yeah. the DUP is kind of centre-right, The how, how would you sort of describe it? Um, so yeah, I think broadly speaking we have um, five main parties, sort of two which would be um, uh, Catholic parties, two which would be Protestant parties, and then one which is kind of mixed of Protestants and, and Catholics in as a, a cross-community party. So the two um, ones which should be kind of perceived as Protestant or, or Unionist parties would be the DUP and the UUP, and they're both quite far right. I think the DUP would be um, similar to UKIP in most um, policies. Um, so one of the main things they proposed for this election, uh, which is whether or not what they call the, the conscience clause, which would enable different businesses to, to ban uh, gay people from, from shops um, and restaurants. So that's kind of um, it's quite far-right politics, which I think most people in the UK um, would probably not agree. I think, broadly speaking, Northern Irish politics tends to be a bit more right-wing than, than in Great Britain, um, whereas the UP would have sort of similar uh, similar sort of ideology, but they would be less extreme in how they, they go about it. And then for the sort of two Catholic or nationalist parties, that would be the, the SLP here, quite sort of centre-left, and they would vote with the Labour whip um, in Westminster. And they are a nationalist party, and then as well, sort of slightly further left would be uh, Sinn Fein, which are much more sort of anti-austerity and anti-cuts, um, and obviously much more Republican than nationalist. And then the the fifth party would be the Alliance Party, which are the cross-community party, and their main focus is um, promoting non-sectarianism and Catholics and Protestants working together. So that's their sort of main thing. So at the moment, we have um, all five parties are in a mandatory coalition. Um, so to a certain extent, it won't be that one party will win, that, but that all five parties will essentially will be re-elected um, to form the executive and it maybe will slightly depend who gets the most seats, will depend and uh, will influence who gets which ministries. Because so, the, the way it works, as I understand it, is that effectively one party gets a seat, then the next the next party down in the popular vote gets a seat and then you yeah. go all the way down until everyone's got one and then you go back again and start from the top. Is that... Yes, it's proportional representation. I think yeah. it's one of the things we have um, per head of population. We have six times the number of um, MPs than people have in England. I think it's partly uh, under the Good Friday Agreement. They wanted this idea that people would be very um, kind of everyone would be sort of invested, and they'd have everyone would have politicians to reflect them, and that was the only way to make Stormont work. But we have this sort of massive democratic surplus where we have um, it's, yeah, I think it's one hundred eight um, MPs equivalent in Stormont for a population of one million. So this. Um, a huge amount, and it's yeah, decided by proportional representation. You sort of instead of putting an X in the box in the election day, you sort of 
could only be from one until up to 10 or 15 to indicate your different preferences. Um, traditionally, the Labour Party has refrained from standing in elections in Northern Ireland, partly because historically the Labour Party has been pro a united Ireland, but that's changing now. Um, could you take me through what's going on with that? Yeah, I think that's been one of the most interesting um, and slightly chaotic things to happen over the last kind of month or two um, that we've seen, which is that, yeah, historically um, the Labour Party haven't run in Northern, Northern Ireland at all. They sort of said that uh, they ask people in Northern Ireland to vote for the, for the SDLP because they're sort of a centre-left party, but there have been a lot more tensions about that recently. I think a lot of people in, in Northern Ireland, uh, Labour Party themselves, they've been saying for a long time they want to, to run and that it amounts to, um, in the use of the term, uh, racial discrimination, the fact that Labour said that Northern Irish people can't uh, vote for Labour. I think the main arguments they have is that um, politics in Northern Ireland has stabilised enough now after the peace process that um, it should just be treated as any other part of the UK. Um, and there's also sort of been some growing tensions, I think particularly how Jeremy Corbyn and John McDonnell would be perceived in Northern Ireland because they some people would see them as having particular opinions on the IRA, which would, would not go down very well amongst um, Northern Irish people. And so um, I think some Labour, Northern Irish Labour Party people would see um, Jeremy Corbyn's leadership as being slightly discredited on that point, and so they're kind of more inclined to defy them. Um, and so I think the official stance was that they were definitely going to run, and they um, took out advertisements in the Belfast Telegraph, and I think they're going to run for the first time in 60 or 70 years. Um, and then the central London office kind of quickly said... That was absolutely not happening at all, but they would the promise to look into it and to have an inquiry. But then I heard yesterday um, some of the some pe- members of the North National Labour Party have announced they're just going to run anyway because they're particularly annoyed by it. There's a case in Northern Ireland this week um, where a woman uh, was convicted of having an abortion, and that's one of the other main tensions that people have um, with the SDLP who are anti-abortion. Um, and so I think Northern Irish Labour uh, members are saying that you know, the, the, uh, Jeremy Corbyn can't ask people to vote for a party which is continuing to uh, to block um, the abortion ban being repealed and so that because it's a human rights issue they're therefore justified in kind of breaking free and running anyway um, but yeah there's been lots of U-turns on it over the last um, couple of weeks and months and I think there probably could still be there's only a month to go now into the election there could still be some more controversy with it but overall it seems the Labour Party they, they don't really have any control on what's happening in Northern Ireland I think unfortunately they've ignored it for for years and years, um, and I don't think they necessarily understand enough of the situation around themselves to really um, intervene effectively at this stage. So I think it's kind of the horse has bolted slightly in terms of the Northern Irish Labour Party, and I think they're just going on a bit of a, a solo run. But whether or not they actually end up in the ballot paper on the 5th of May will kind of be interesting to see. Right. Um, one sort of final question. Northern Ireland is the most uh, uh, pro-European part of the United Kingdom, yeah. but mm-hmm. the... First Minister and the and her party are against. Uh, are, have come out for Brexit. Do you think there's uh, will will they pay a price for that at the ballot? Do you think? Um, I don't think so. I think part of why they were able to come out so strongly against that is because they know that Northern Ireland will. I mean, it will definitely vote to stay in the EU. So there's sort of no risk of that. But it is a particular tension within the DUB because they're sort of very far right, almost UKIP um, political attitudes that they would subscribe to certain um, yeah ideas about that they wouldn't be hugely pro-immigration and it kind of fulfilled more of those um, attitudes and stances that they would have. Um, but overall, definitely, uh, also another issue was that they were sort of hopeful or they suggested that perhaps a border could therefore, a physical land border, could be put up between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland, um, which is obviously the only um, land border that the UK has with another European Union country. Um, that would sort of feed into their unionist ideology that Northern Ireland is a complete separate country from 
the Republic of Ireland, so they would be quite happy to see, you know, whether it's passport um, control or sort of actual physical walls there to stop people. Um, but I think realistically it won't happen, so they won't kind of actually have to kind of follow through with the different things they're suggesting at the moment. And uh, anything to look out for on election night in particular, if our listeners were looking at one thing? I'd say the most interesting constituency will probably be the West Belfast one. I think that's always been one of the most interesting ones. It's one um, where Jerry Adams was an MP for, for so long. Um, and at the moment we have um, Alex Atwood is one of the sort of leading SDLP politicians and it looks very likely that he will lose his seat there to this new um, sort of anti-austerity group called People Before Profit. And they're sort of very, very far left, sort of almost Marxist party in there. Um, they got quite a significant vote at uh, the Westminster election last year, which would be enough under the proportional representation system to get a seat this year. And it looks likely that we'll kind of see people, it seems to be a people are maybe not voting for the kind of more centre-left parties because politics sometimes amongst particular sort of national communities has gone so far left. I think we should see, it would be quite interesting to sort of see kind of more Marxist political parties in there within the, with the DEP in, in Storm, but it could make things a lot more interesting and again would be a breakaway from the sort of traditional um, Catholic, Protestant, Unionist, um, nationalist politics we see a lot of in Northern Ireland. Fascinating. Thanks very much. Good. Thank you. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. And now to discuss the Scottish elections, we're joined by David Torrance, who is a biographer of both Nicola Sturgeon and Alex Salmond. David, first of all, we're just to because you're the expert in this, give us the the frame. So the SNP won an astonishing landslide at the May general election. The Scottish system in Holyrood was set up to stop to to kind of encourage power sharing. That's that's over now, isn't it? And there have been lots of talks about the fact that the SNP expect basically to win every constituency and dominate the lists as well. Yeah. So really reducing Labour and the Tories right down. Uh, what's, a kind of, what's the kind of expected outcome? What will everyone be kind of, what's the baseline that everyone's working against they expect to happen in these elections? Well, the expectation is the SNP will win. Kezi Dugdale, the Scottish Labour leader, has more or less conceded that. Everyone is working on that assumption. So, that, so it's assumed that the SNP will get most of the, the constituency seats. Um, so the list uh, vote is where it's at. And there's really a battle for second place, which makes it a rather curious uh, election. And so the SNP are running um, their, their slogan, uh, hashtag both votes SNP, where they're emphasising to their supporters, and there's lots of them, that they, they shouldn't just vote SNP in the constituency, but also on the list, so they can replicate uh, the result from 2011, which broke uh, the electoral system you, you referred to, one that was supposed to avoid an overall majority, not just of the SNP, but of Labour uh, and anyone else. Now, that could backfire to an extent. Uh, the Greens are polling quite well. Um, the Tories are up a couple of points. Uh, Labour are down uh, significantly. And I think there's a poll um, just uh, released which shows the SNP on the, the second vote, the list vote, actually down 10 points. So that could potentially be 
quite interesting, although there's no realistic expectation that the, the, the SNP will be deprived of an overall majority. Aren't they in a funny place, really, which is that everyone expects them to do so well that there's almost, short of winning every single seat and kind of Nicola Sturgeon being appointed emperor, there is almost no result that it doesn't look slightly disappointing for them. They've been, you know, they're expecting so much. Yeah, I mean, it's an expectation management game. I think if they don't get an overall majority, although, as I say, I think there's a slim prospect of that, it will look like a bad result, even if they're still by far uh, the largest uh, party. And it will create a very interesting dynamic because their only potential coalition allies are the Greens, who are significantly now to the left of the SNP. In fact, most parties, apart from the Tories, are now to the left of the SNP. And that is that in itself is, is an interesting uh, developing dynamic. The SNP are now making a virtue of being in the centre of, of Scottish politics, having long claimed uh, to be uh, left of centre, centre left, and certainly to the left of Labour, but that's no longer the case. This is something that is one of my personal kind of hobby horses. So my last couple of times up in Scotland, you know, I've been talking to SNP supporters who were kind of very, I guess they, they, one of the reasons they sort of talk about leaving Labour was about Tony Blair and about the kind of new Labour and actually it dropped its old socialist tradition then we went through this phase and Stephen will remember this with as much angst as I will when Jeremy Corbyn was elected and we, yeah, both you and I were confidently told by many people that thankfully finally Labour had a left wing leader and this was it this was going to be you know Scotland mm. coming back and I remember people like Alex Massey telling me at the time you know, that idea is for the birds it's just you know yeah. this is not people are not voting SNP because they think finally socialism can happen in, in mm. Scotland but Kezia Dugdale suggested that she would reintroduce 50p top tax rate. And Nicola Sturgeon made the same argument against that that George Osborne hmm. was doing. So what are people who are support who are left-wing SNP supporters? What's their how has their rationale changed for that support? There are signs that some on the on the Scottish left, some on the left of the SNP are getting increasingly sort of weary with the, the obvious sort of fudging and pragmatism and dare I say it, Blairite, you know, strategy dun, dun, of, dun, dun. of the SNP and this will get me pelters as, as usual. But it's true, you know, I mean, the, the, the SNP studied Tony Blair and New Labour quite closely and have, have, they've been very good pupils in terms of message, discipline, triangulation, professionalism and all, all the rest of it. So the more left-wing supporters are, I think, getting increasingly uneasy, but not to the extent that they're, they're not going to vote SNP, certainly in the first vote. They might vote Green on the second vote, and certainly the Greens have been targeting those more left-wing SNP supporters. Others, I mean, they still, you know, bang the social justice drum, but they're, they believe in Nicola Sturgeon, and another aspect of this election is it's quite presidential. Her name's on the ballot paper, it's very presidential, she's visiting every constituency, because she is a huge asset for the party. So implicit in that is trust Nicola and, you know, okay, she's being a bit cautious at the moment, but when she has her own mandate, her overall majority, that's when she'll get really radical. That falls down a bit because she's already set out what she's doing in the next five years and it's not very radical. So the idea that after the election, she'll somehow, you know, go back on all that, I think is for, for the birds. And then the argument will become, oh, well, after independence, that's the time to get properly radical. But the trouble is this refrain goes back to 2007. Oh, just wait till we have an overall majority. Just wait till we're independent. Just wait till Nicola replaces Alec. It, and it, it, it doesn't happen. Okay. But, but there's lots of people willing to suspend their disbelief, it seems. So we've been slightly mean about the SNP. Let's be, I think, rightly slightly mean about Scottish Labour hmm. because they are in a really tough place. And they, I think Kezia Dugdale is, is doing a, as, as good a job as anyone could do in those circumstances. Maybe that's the kind of 
fairest assessment. But the, people's appetite in Scotland for continuing to give Scottish Labour a really good kicking. It reminds me of The Simpsons, you know, with a stop, he's already dead. You know, that they just seem to want to still punish Labour in yeah. some slightly visceral way. Why is well, that? They've, they've been punishing the, the Scottish Conservatives for the past 25 years. It, yeah. it, it, I suppose they, they have a new punch bag. Um, yeah, I mean, there's very, there's very little way that anyone can put a gloss on Scottish Labour's performance. I think Kezia Dugdale, in any other context, would be a good leader, but this, of course, is not any other context. She's had a rough time over the past week. Uh, she said in a, an interview with the Fabian Review that she, she might consider supporting independence if the UK left the EU. Um, the SNP have revealed that she once applied to work for an SNP MSP when she was a, a student. All very embarrassing, and it, it feeds into the a view offered as just a bit hapless and not terribly effective, which, as I say, in any other context wouldn't wouldn't be fair. Um, but the trouble is Scottish politics has got into a groove similar to the, the groove it got in with the Scottish Tories where people fall out of the habit of supporting that party and they, they end up becoming a bit of a joke. And it's very, very difficult to recover from that. Ask the Scottish Conservatives, you know, they've been losing votes since 1997. Labour are not there yet, but if they dip below 20%, um, it's very, very difficult to recover from that. Um, speaking of the Scottish Conservatives, in some ways they're in this bizarre situation. They had their worst ever result mm. uh, in the election, but they are talked up, particularly south of the border. And they have a very um, dynamic leader in, in Ruth Davidson. They're talking a lot about this idea they could finish second. Do you think that is likely? I mean... Uh, not really. Um, again, it, it comes down to expectation management. They have to balance. It's a balance between motivating their their supporters, and that's a very good, you know, motivational line. Uh, but also not sort of raising expectations too much. I think it's possible the Scottish Conservatives could get a couple more seats, um, but that, that is not a huge gain. And if they do come second, which I think is unlikely, it will be because Labour has plunged uh, so low, not because the Tory vote has gone up. Now, Ruth Davison is very effective. And, and, you know, as you say, people in Westminster and the Tory party UK-wide are, are very taken by her. And she is effective, but it's, it's no longer enough. And it's the same with Labour. Uh, you can have the best leader in the world. Barack Obama could be leading the Scottish Labour Party or the Scottish Conservatives. And it, it simply wouldn't make much difference because it's not really about that. It's about who's seen to stand up for Scotland. Uh, and that is firmly with Nicola Sturgeon and the SNP. Oh, my, uh, finally, a couple of weeks ago, uh, Kezia Dugdale came out as gay in an interview. Um, now in a situation where I think four out of six of Scottish mm. uh, political leaders are either LG or B. Is, does it actually, does it in portentous terms say anything about Scotland? Or is it just, you know, is it just a kind of interesting weird quirk of how it, the leaders have ended up kind of falling into place? It certainly says something about how attitudes have shifted uh, in Scotland. I mean, when I first started covering Scottish politics in um, the year 2000, 1999, there was a huge row about abolishing Section 28. There was an informal referendum in Scotland about uh, retaining it. There was lots of nasty stuff around. And now, you know, 16 years later, as you say, four out of the six leaders uh, are, are gay, lesbian or bisexual. So that's quite remarkable. And I think more revealing is how little comment it's generated. I mean, I, I, I have Peace in the Guardian talking about it, but, you know, 
at the same time, no one's outraged about it. There's no real backlash. I mean, think if that was the case in, in the US election at the moment, that several leading candidates were, were gay or lesbian, there would be a huge backlash. There's nothing like that in Scotland. And it's just considered, it's almost considered non-news. And indeed, indeed, I've had pelters on Twitter, you know, why are you hyping this up? It's not a big deal. No, but I that, did that, laugh that, at that's the fact a good that response. BuzzFeed kind of covered it in the sense of like, Kezi Dugdo came out and no one cares, which is the way of kind of the, the classic Guardian, where I think they did, Tom Daly has come out and no one cares. And you're like, well, yeah. clearly you're doing the news story, <laughs> so in fact yeah. you do care. Yeah. But I think maybe more interesting than, than Kezia is, is the, the UKIP leader is gay. So we've now told you. UKIP, that was the fourth. I was thinking yeah. six. He's not really, well, I suppose he is de facto Scottish party leader. In, in as much one. as UKIP have <laughs> yeah. a party so organisation as well. Only UKIP, yeah. no, I was going to go the only UKIP parliamentarian in the village, and I just <laughs> realised that would be a terrible joke. Um, it's alright that you went through with it, so it's, yeah. we all got to appreciate that. <laughs> but I think that's a really interesting point is that now LGBT causes have become kind of de yoked from a larger left wing agenda, right? So it's just, you, yeah. you can make it in the Conservative Party, you can make it in UKIP in the same way that yeah. perhaps you would have thought only in Labour or the Lib Dems. And could no you do one that. really cares. Um, yeah. So yeah, that, 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 that says a lot about how attitudes have shifted, not just in Scotland, but across the UK. And we're finally, really unfairly, predictions. Oh, uh, I always get these wrong. No, I know. I I have a a consistent history of terrible predictions. (laughs) I think that the SNP will be the largest party. I think it's likely they'll have an overall majority. If they don't, that could produce an interesting situation with the Greens. I think the Scottish Conservatives at most will get two or three extra MSPs, but not come second. Lib Dems could either lose all their seats or retain the five they have. Uh, I think that's quite finely balanced. And Kezia Dugdale and Ruth Davidson are both on the list, so there's no Portillo moment no, coming. No, they'll both be in, yeah. Thank you very much, David Torrance. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast, presented by me, Helen Lewis, with Stephen Bush. Our producer is India Bork, and our music is Devil with a Devil by the Underscore Orchestra, licensed under Creative Commons. You can find us on iTunes or at newstatesman.com forward slash podcast. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done.